Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. You're listening to a Big Heads Media podcast. Tonight, I talk about one town surrounded by a whole bunch of shipwrecks, and we're going to talk about two in particular. It is Thunder Bay, Ontario, Canada. All that and more on Small Town Secrets. Welcome to episode four of season two. And tonight we're going to do things a little bit differently. Instead of talking about two towns, we're going to talk about one. And I know I've done it before, but that's kind of what the season finale is uh, for. But I found one place that's just chock full of shipwrecks, and I've always wanted to do an episode on shipwrecks. And I found a couple of the various wrecks around the area that have a little bit more going on than your normal shipwreck. So we're going to just talk about one town, which is going to be Thunder Bay, Ontario. And we're going to talk about two shipwrecks that happened in the bay, actually around a little island called Isle Royale. So it's kind of weird. So the town of Thunder Bay is in Ontario, 
but the island that all these shipwrecks kind of seem to happen around is in Michigan. It's almost like the the borderline goes down and then up and around uh, the Isle of Royale and comes back. Almost like we wanted it for some reason, so it was that's how it ended up. But we're going to talk about the SS Algoma and the SS Kamloops. One has a kind of cryptid Native American legend attached to it, and the other one is just has got this very interesting ghost story attached to it that you don't really hear about in other shipwrecks. And that is what we are going to talk about tonight. But before we get on to that, I just want to take a little second and thank everyone for listening. Thank everyone for supporting the show once again. Um, the numbers just kind of keep gradually going up in a nice organic way. And there's a lot to look forward to coming up. So thanks everyone for continuing to listen and hopefully letting everyone know that also likes podcasts about this podcast and getting them to listen too. But before we get on to tonight's kind of main meat of the show, we are going to take a listen at another Big Heads Media podcast. This one is Bros Talking Soccer. So take a listen and we'll be back in a few seconds. My name is Dave Knittle. I'm Christian Knittle. And my name is Matthew Knittle. We are the three hosts of the Bros Talking Soccer podcast. You may have noticed that we all have the same last name. Well, that's because we are brothers, bros, talking soccer. Get it? On Bros Talking Soccer, we talk about what's happening in American and European soccer. We also have interview episodes where we talk with guests working on grassroots projects in American or European soccer. Follow us on Twitter at BT Soccer Pod or visit our website, brostalkingsoccer.com, for more info. All of our shows are recorded on YouTube, where you can come interact with us as we record. Bros Talking Soccer is available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Just search Bros Talking Soccer. Hope to talk to you again soon. And we are back. And like I said, we're just going to talk about one town at Thunder Bay, Ontario. And we're going to discuss the the SS Algoma first and the story of the Meshepishu, which is a Native American word and also very fun to say, the Meshepishu. But let's talk about Thunder Bay just a little bit first. Thunder Bay sits on the coast of Lake Superior, just north of the Michigan border. It boasts a population of around 108,000. It is actually an amalgamation of former cities Port Arthur and Fort William. On January 1st of 1970, the city of Thunder Bay was officially born when the two towns were put together and renamed Thunder Bay. Just off the coast, on the U.S. side of the border, lies Isle Royale. It's now a state park full of hiking trails and campgrounds. Surrounding the island are a number of shipwrecks. One of them is called the SS Algoma. Built by Ankin and Mansell in Glasgow, Scotland in 1883, it was a 262-foot-long screw steamer used by the Canadian Pacific Railway Company. It had two sister ships, the Anthabasca and the Alberta. All three were identical. They were intended to be passenger ships on the uh, Great Lakes. The Algoma was actually too large to fit through the Whalen Canal, and I guess, I'm assuming all three of them were like this because they were the same ship. And the Whalen Canal is a canal that connects um, Lake Erie and I can't remember another lake. It used to be a big, big way to get into the canal, so if you couldn't fit through the Whalen Canal back in the day, you had issues. So it was actually cut in half and had cabins added to it before it was rebuilt on the other side of the canal. It would be on November 5th, 1885 that the Algoma would leave Owen Sound on its way to Thunder Bay. 
It was carrying 37 passengers, railway supplies, and other merchandise. Some of that merchandise was a load of UP copper. The area around Michigan and the Great Lakes was a well-known source of copper deposits. In fact, IRL is known to have the purest copper deposits in the world due to the volcanic event in which created the island. The copper-bearing bedrock was exposed above the waterline. This exposure to the open air burned away all the sulfur impurities. On November 6, she entered Lake Superior. That night, there was a terrible snowstorm. At 4.40 a.m., the captain ordered to change course. Shortly after, she would run aground on the southeast shore of Mott Island, which is a small little island that is on the coast of Isle Royale. At around 6 a.m., the ship broke in two. It would be, and still is, the largest loss of life on the Great Lakes. There's a Native American legend that surrounds the Great Lakes. It is known as the Meshepeshu. The name translates to the Great Lynx in the Ojibwa language. It is also known as the Water Panther. It is said to have the body of a large cat, much like a panther or a puma, with scales and spikes on its back, as well as deer-like horns. According to the tribes around the Great Lakes area, the Water Panther makes its home on Meshipitan Island. It has the power to bring forth powerful storms and fiercely guards the copper around the area. There aren't a lot of sightings of the Water Panther, but there is one story of an encounter with the beast. Claude de Blon was a Jesuit missionary. He found himself on Lake Superior in 1668 and was one of the first to report back on the region's rich copper deposits. Claude told the tale of four Ojibwe natives as they made course for Mishibishu's home island. The trip was for a bit of copper to heat water with. Almost as soon as the canoe hit the water, the frightening growl of the water panther invaded their ears. The panther accused them of stealing the playthings of his children, and all four of the Native Americans died on their way back home. Could this mythical creature be the reason why the SS Algoma and many others who also took copper from the area met their fate during violent storms in Lake Superior? And, I don't know, that one was kind of just interesting because of the Native American lore that it's kind of associated with. A lot of people will tell you stories about how it is the Meshepeshu that took this ship and grounded it and got it caught in the storm and did all that great stuff. But I really found that interesting. And we don't really haven't really done a lot with Native American lore on the show yet, so it was kind of nice to throw one in there. That is the unfortunate tale of the SS Algoma, but like I said, it's not the only shipwreck around Thunder Bay. And we're going to talk about another one here after the boom. So the SS Algoma is an interesting story because of its ties with Native American folklore and possibly a Great Lake cryptid of some sort. But the SS Kamloops is, I think, a more, I don't know how to explain it, it feels more maritime type of paranormal story than the other one, but it has a little bit of a twist to it, and I, I really wanted to talk about it, so let's get into our second shipwreck on Thunder Bay, the SS Kamloops. The SS Algoma isn't the only shipwreck around Thunder Bay. Like I said, there are plenty. However, not all of them have a dead body that is also haunted by a ghost. Only the SS Kamloops can claim that story. The Kamloops was a 250-foot-long canaler 
that was built by the Furnace Shipbuilding Company in 1924. It was a smaller ship that was unpopular at the time in the Great Lakes. Its smaller size was needed to more easily get through the Whalen Canal that I mentioned earlier. Its last voyage started on December 1st, 1927. The Kamloops made its way with considerable cargo through Lake Huron and the Salt St. Marie Canal and then onto Lake Superior. And if you don't know a lot about the Great Lakes, like Lake Superior is, it has the reputation for being the kind of, I don't want to say rugged because it's a lake. I don't know if water is rugged, but the most challenging of the Great Lakes to get through and to deal with. Just like the Algoma, the Kamloops got caught in a major winter storm. The Kamloops sister ship, the Quedoc, was following the Kamloops when it saw a dark object rise out of the water and changed course. It warned the Kamloops, but it lost sight of the ship in the heavy fog. There was not only fog, but heavy ice had built up on the ship, which probably made sailing it all the more difficult. It was last seen on dusk on December 6, steaming towards the southeastern shore of Isle Wurral. A search vessel was sent out on December 12th. It searched until the 22nd with no sign of the ship or the crew. It wouldn't be until the next spring of June 1928. Many fishermen discovered some human remains and wreckage from the ship. Out of the 22 men and women, all who died when the ship went down, only nine were recovered. And out of those nine, only five of them were ever identified. And they are all now buried, I believe, at a, a memorial at Thunder Bay. Um, these nine people, I think all nine of them, were actually found on the shore of Isle Royale. So I'm going to go on a, on a short limb and say that back in the 20s, uh, Isle Royale was not a state park. Well, no, because it was before the Great Depression. So no, it wouldn't have been a state park. It was probably just a completely uninhabited island. And they they had made it to shore, but probably died of exposure on shore because they were basically on you know an island and no one was there to find them and died from the elements, from the cold of being out in the middle of nowhere after probably being drenched in, you know, soaked in water. And then add the winter on top of that and probably no supplies and no no food, no nothing to survive, and they just probably died out there on shore. In fact, in December of 1928, a trapper found a message in a bottle at the mouth of the Ogawa River in Ontario, Canada. The note in the bottle was written by one Alice Betridge, who was a stewardess on the Kamloops. The message said, I am the last one left alive, freezing and starving to death on Isle Royale in Lake Superior. I just want mom and dad to know my fate. As time marched on, modern divers started diving down into the cold depths of Lake Superior and exploring the wreckage of the Kamloops. Because the water of Lake Superior always stays just above freezing at its depths, and there's not a lot of life in the water, the wreck and a lot of its cargo are still very much preserved. Lifesavers candy and farming equipment wasn't the only thing on the ship that was preserved by the cold water. Divers who explored the wreck would start to tell stories of an entity they deemed Grandpa. Stories ranged from seeing a pale white crew member watch divers through portholes or be posted up in the bunks. Others would say that he would wander through the ship, going about his business as if it was still alive. Many other divers reported that old Whitey, as he would become more well known, uh, so he was Grandpa, then it kind of morphed into old Whitey over the years. But anyway, they would say that old Whitey would start to follow them around the ship and keep an eye on them. 
as they explored, and many times they would, he would reach out and try to touch them. Is old Whitey the ghost of some long-dead crew member? Or is he just a body that is being pushed along by the current? And if so, why does he seem to follow divers around? He never seems to be hostile towards anybody, more like curious. We don't know the identity of old Whitey, nor exactly how the Kamloops came to be a rusted hulk at the bottom of Lake Superior. But perhaps if we did, old Whitey could finally rest in peace. And I will post it in the show notes. There is a, a YouTube video of someone exploring the Kamloops wreckage. And I think like two minutes in, look at the comments. It'll tell you exactly when it happens. You can see what many people are saying are old Whitey's feet. There's not a lot of pictures of old Whitey, but it's an interesting video. I don't think it was made to be like, here's old Whitey. I think it was made to be like, here's the Kamloops. And then he kind of caught this strange thing on the cam, you know, on video as he was going about and probably didn't realize it until way later. But that is a story of two, I think, of the more interesting shipwrecks around Thunder Bay. Maybe one of these days I'll take a look at the other ones and see what else is there. Maybe we could do a second Thunder Bay shipwreck episode. But we are going to take a small musical break and come back, like we always do, with some local headlines. This week's 
local headlines. And the first one is from Coast to Coast by Tim Banal. And it is Loch Ness Eel footage sparks monstrous misunderstanding. A video hailed by some observers as confirmation that the Loch Ness Monster is really an eel appears to be more of a misunderstanding rather than actual proof. The footage in question was posted to Twitter by the Ness Fishery Board earlier this month and features an underwater glimpse of the river Ness which runs out of the Scottish landmark. In the footage, what looks like a fairly lengthy creature can be seen swimming through the water above a trout that looks diminutive in comparison. In their post sharing the video, the group wrote, Let's be honest, when you see a large eel-shaped object passing your camera into the river Ness, the first thing you think of is the Loch Ness Monster. Interest in the video intensified a few days later when the results of an environmental DNA study at Loch Ness indicated that the most plausible theory for the famed monster is that it is an eel. Suddenly the footage took on a new meaning as many observers postulated that it constituted proof for that conclusion. However, the director of the Ness Fisheries Board now says that the posting of the footage has been met in jest It does not show a giant eel. It is actually likely to be a tree branch, Chris Conroy revealed to ABC News. He also theorized that the object measured around 9 feet in length, which is far bigger than an eel in Loch Ness would be expected to grow. He also expressed amazement at how the footage spread online and the amount of work people did to analyze the footage, all because we just made a reference to the Loch Ness Monster. With the video having sparked apparently false headlines around the world, Conroy was quick to stress that in no way were we trying to do a hoax, and chalked the confusion up to people talking about the post too seriously, and not realizing it was meant to be a jest. Whether he did his best to dispel the misconception that the video shown as a giant eel, one fears that it's probably too late to enlighten too many people who have seen the footage and now believe that the Loch Ness Eel had really been caught on film. And... I didn't do the, I don't think I did the news story, but yeah, a couple weeks ago they did come out with some DNA stuff and said, hey, if the Loch Ness Monster exists, it's probably an eel. And everyone's kind of acting like this is a new thing, and this isn't a new thing. I remember years ago there were people postulating that it was an eel because they were finding large kind of muddy eel tracks on the shore, much larger than any eel that would live in fresh water would be, and that's what they were kind of getting that was that, yeah, it's not, you know, an ancient dinosaur, but it is a much larger eel than it should be, which still in itself would be interesting, but I just wanted to read this one to kind of dispel if anyone has seen the video. Uh, you can watch it. It's not like a great video. It could be an eel. It could also be a log. It could be uh, a giant rubber band. Um, there was another kind of sea monster video also a couple weeks ago about in some some lake or some river in China and it turned out to be a, a giant rubber band off of some machinery. I don't remember. Did I do the story on that or not? I don't even remember. Moving on, we're going to go over to drovers.com. This is written by Greg Henderson and this has been on the news a lot uh, are the cattle mutilations in Oregon and this is bulls killed, mutilated on Oregon Ranch. Oregon authorities are investigating the deaths and mutilation of five bulls on the Sylvie's Valley Ranch. The bull carcasses were discovered July 30th and 31st on the ranch in Harney County with no obvious cause of death. Colby Marshall, vice president of the Sylvie's Valley Ranch, told the Capitol Press there are no outward signs of a struggle, no rope burns on trees, no scattered hoof prints, no strangulation marks. The bulls, he said, looked like they simply fell over and died. Even stranger than the deaths, 
Harney County Sheriff Department Deputy Dan Jenkins said there were mutilations. Only a few pieces of the body were removed on each animal. The anus, scrotum, testicles, and tongues. One bull was also missing its penis and the tip of one ear. The Harney County Sheriff's Office, the Oregon State Police, and the Muhalf Natural Forest Immigrant Creek Ranger District are investigating. Deputy Jenkins said a necropsy to determine the cause of death was not possible because when found, the bulls were already past the 24-hour window when a veterinary inspection would have been effective. Jenkins told the Capitol Press the missing body parts don't appear to have been chewed, but the wounds appeared clean-cut. The parts were definitely cut out with a sharp blade, he said. There weren't any signs of predatory eating or chewing. They were cut out by at least one person. The Oregon Cattlemen's Association has offered a award up to $1,000 to anyone who can provide information leading to the arrest and conviction of whomever is responsible. A separate $25,000 award is also being offered by an interested party. Those with information about the case should call the Harney County Dispatch Center at 541-573-6156. And this last one is a bit of an update, and it's been around, so I bet a lot of you have probably already seen it. This is from Newsweek. Written by Kelly Wynn, an exclusive making a murderer confession. Convicted Wisconsin murderer allegedly confesses to killing Teresa Halbach. A Wisconsin inmate has reportedly confessed to the murder of Teresa Halbach. The inmate, who will remain unnamed until Wisconsin law enforcement has access to said confession, told filmmakers of an upcom- upcoming documentary series convicting a murderer that he was responsible for the infamous death, a scene on making a murderer. Currently, there are two men behind bars for Hallbach's death. Both claim they are innocent. Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey have both spent years fighting for their freedom. Dassey took his case all the way to the Supreme Court, where his attempt at a new trial was rejected, while Avery continues the appeals process. Sean Reck, director of Convicting a Murderer, told Newsweek his crew were given the confession while filming the documentary series. We haven't confirmed the legitimacy of the confession, but seeing as it was given by a notable convicted murderer from Wisconsin, we feel responsible to deliver any and all possible evidence to law enforcement and legal teams, he told Newsweek. Having been in production for 20 months, we've uncovered an unfathomable amount of information and evidence that is leading us to the truth. Our investigation does not end there. Rick also confirms the confession did not come from Dassey or Avery. If the secret inmate's confession is found reliable, it could spark freedom for both Dassey and Avery. Much of America joined forces to support exoneration for the uncle and nephew pair after the two parts of Making a Murder premiered on Netflix in 2016. The documentary series took viewers into the lives of Dassey and Avery's family, all diving deep into forensic evidence that could point to a third-party killer. Catherine Zellner, Avery's current lawyer, has a handful of theories that point to other members of the Dassey family as Halbach's killers. She spent years recreating parts of the crime scene and evidence in hopes of proving Avery couldn't have committed the murder he's convicted of. If Avery is exonerated, he will be the second time he is wrongly convicted of a violent crime in the state of Wisconsin. Convicting a Murder is a 10-part documentary series currently in post-production according to the Internet Movie Database. The series aims to be a sequel to Making a Murderer, but will include parts of the Netflix series left out, Rick told Newsweek in January. I watched Making a Murderer like tens of millions of others, Rick said. After watching the series, I was angry with law enforcement and even embarrassed as an American because of what have appeared to have happened to Stephen and Brendan. But after doing a little bit of follow-up research, I learned that not only did I not have the whole story, but I was misled by the series. And I'm saying this as a fan, not an established documentary filmmaker. In the docuseries, a handful of law enforcement figures who believe Avery's guilty 
like Andy Colburn, are expected to appear. And that has been this week's local headlines. We are going to finish up the show with some listener stories, like we always do, and I've got a couple of good ones here. So tonight we have, once again, two listener stories. The first one is from a Reddit user, Allenzer23, and this happened on Vancouver Island. So this happened to me a couple of weeks ago on vacation with my family. I've had trouble explaining it to my family members, and even myself, so I would figured I'd share it here. First, a little bit of context. I live in British Columbia, Canada, and every summer my family likes to go out on weekend trips in order to get away and relax. This past summer, we decided to head out to Vancouver Island to explore and visit the beaches. Beautiful place, by the way. Now on to the freaky bit. My family was driving out to the northern tip of Vancouver Island when we came across some road construction. Now we were in the middle of a heavily forested area, stuck in traffic, waiting for the crews to wave us along. Naturally, I fell asleep in the car. I woke up at what felt like an hour later to see that we still weren't moving. I looked at my dad and his eyes were just fixed on the road, still waiting on the cruise the way of us forward. My mom is asleep in the back seat and my little sister is staring out the window, listening to music. I remember thinking at the time that it was oddly quiet for a construction site, no sounds of machinery or heavy equipment, but didn't seem significant at the time. My eyes naturally gravitated toward the passenger side window as well as something caught my eye. On the side of the road, Beside a cluster of trees, I see what appeared to be a young girl standing beside a tree looking over at us. She appeared to be no older than 10 or 11. Now at first I assume it's just a girl from one of the cars lined up behind us also stuck in traffic, as it wouldn't be too far out of the ordinary to assume that just a kid got bored sitting in the car and decided to explore the surrounding woods. What stuck out to me as different is the clothes the girl was wearing. They seemed old. She was wearing a white sundress with little blue dots and a black headband. Now again, this was this was in August. Not too out of the ordinary, I guessed. She was just kind of pacing around back and forth between the trees on the side of the road. I realized I must have looked super weird just looking at this girl, so I decided I was just overthinking things. That was not before she and I made brief eye contact, which I responded with a smile and a friendly wave. She waved back and also smiled at me. But then I noticed another defining feature, her eyes. They were completely blue, like her pupils and what should have been the whites of her eyes were a deep navy blue. I tried to remain calm as possible and slowly began to look away as I was completely freaked out at this point. It was then that a boy also emerged from behind one of the trees. He appeared to be a little older, maybe 15 or so. He was quite lengthy with freckles on his cheeks. He was wearing a band t-shirt with jeans and Adidas sneakers. Eyes of the same shade of navy blue. They both began to beckon over to me as if to get me to get out of the car and join them in the woods. Being pretty creeped out at this point, I looked back at my sister to see if she was also seeing this. She was also staring out the window, eyes wide in disbelief. I then noticed that she was slowly reaching for the car door, eyes still fixed on the two kids who are now beckoning, beckoning a little more urgently. The looks on their faces going from friendly to impatient and a little aggressive. I proceeded to shout her name and to get her to snap out of whatever trance she was in. I tried to get the attention of my dad beside me, but to my horror, I, always, I also realized I can't speak. Like my lips were moving, but no words were coming out of my mouth. I tried shaking my dad, but he seemed completely unfazed and kept his eyes glued on the road. 
My sister also tried shaking my mom awake, but to the same effect. As I'm trying to remain calm myself, I tell my sister to just close her eyes and count to 20 with me. Something my parents and I used to tell her when she was younger in order to get her to calm down from her anxiety. I hadn't done that in years, but I had to do something. Together we both closed our eyes and started counting together. When we opened them again, the world suddenly seemed to come alive again. I could hear the sound of construction workers yelling to each other, as well as the sounds of engines and other cars surrounding us. I look outside and unsurprisingly the kids were gone. I look over and ask my dad how long we've been in traffic, and he said for roughly 10 minutes. When we finally get moving again, I wasted no time in telling my parents what I'd seen. However, my dad told me that he glanced over to me a couple of times, and I was just zoned out staring out the window. The rest of our vacation went by normal, nothing out of the ordinary, and we all had a good time. My sister even seemed to play it off as some sort of weird dream, and for some reason we had shared it. It was when I got home to the mainland that I started really looking into my experience. I of course hit on the possibility that I just dreamt the whole thing, but I always come back to the fact that my sister and I were both conscious, or at least had the same experience, and can both recall little details. I have looked all over Reddit and have seen similar stories to blue-eyed children, but nothing really matching me and my sister's experience. I'm posting this here to see what everyone has to say about it. I know it's a little long, but it really does intrigue me. If nothing else, I'll have a creepy story to tell at campfires or when hanging out with friends. The biggest question that still resonates with me to this day, what would have happened to us if my sister and I had gotten out of that car? And to me, it sounds like I've never heard of a lot of blue-eyed kid stories, but it almost sounds to me like, could it have been a, some black-eyed kids and maybe, I'm assuming if there's a lot of traffic and a lot of construction, there's a lot of lights going around. Could it have been reflections of all these lights from these black eyes that made them appear more blue? And it also seems that they experience the Oz effect that you hear about where all the sound drains out and everything just gets very, like, I don't want to say calm, but... You know, all the senses just kind of dull and all the sound around you just fades away for a little bit. But I, th I thought it was a really interesting and well-written tale, so I wanted to throw it on the show. I'll, I'll link it in the show notes, so if anyone wants to get on Reddit and add a comment to it, you'll be able to find it. And our last story is uh, from Lafayette, Indiana, and this was sent in by Landon Lindsay. And he is telling a story, that he is, he is looking into it, he's investigating this UFO sighting that has some family members had a while back. So he sent me a little snippet of what they said and a picture. So we're going to throw that into the show notes. If anyone around the Lafayette, Indiana or anywhere near there has ever seen uh, this craft, this drawing, take a look at it. He's got some good information on it. Uh, let us know. Write us into the show. Uh, the, the show's email is stscastmail at gmail.com. If you have any information... Let me know, send it on into the show, and I'll forward it on to Landon so he can continue his investigation. It was night, around 9 p.m. They were home alone. They lived out in the country with the nearest neighbor being a quarter mile away, and both of them were getting ready to go to bed when they saw the lights outside from the living room window facing the backyard, which was a large cornfield. The older one attempted to go outside to get a better look, and the other remained inside. Then the craft started coming closer to the house, and the older girl ran back inside. The older girl didn't get a good look, but the younger one saw it as it approached and gave the description seen in the drawing. It was a low fly it was low flying and kicked up dust from the cornfield as it hovered at an angle. They both ran into the bathroom to hide. 
and they heard the craft hovering above their house. It was an extremely loud hum. They both confirmed it wasn't a helicopter. They said it sounded similar to the tripods from the War of the Worlds, the Tom Cruise one. After a few minutes, the hums vanished and the craft was gone. They later told their parents, but they weren't taken seriously. And he has some uh, additional information in the drawing. It happened in August or September of 1977 or possibly 1978 in West Lafayette, Indiana. Looks like there's also some GPS, or not GPS coordinates, but latitude longitude coordinates. And he's just got, you know, he's got a pretty good drawing there. He's got some, you know, heights of the craft and where it was and different stuff. So check that out. Like I said, if anyone has any information, let us know and I'll uh, get it to them. And that has been this week's listener stories for episode four of season two. And that wraps up this episode of the show. Um, If you have a small town secret you would like to share, it could be a UFO encounter. It could be a blue eyed slash black eyed kids encounter. It could be a local legend, a local true crime story. Uh, anything really that you want to share about your small town, there are plenty of ways to get it to me. You can go to stscast.com, scroll down to the bottom of that main page, and there's an email form right there, or you can email it directly into stscastmail at gmail.com. You can also hit me up on social media. Uh, Facebook and Twitter both use the same name. It's at stscast, and I'm also on Instagram. That is stscast.gram. I'm most active on Twitter, so if you have a story, you can get on there and get me get it to me that way, too. Uh, there's also a subreddit for the show, which is STS Listener Stories. Um, there's also a link at the bottom. At the bottom of the page, there's links to all the social media, all the ways to listen to the show, the subreddit, everything. Other things you can find on STS Cast are... Uh, episode sh- summaries, so all the show notes are there, all the links, all the sources, pictures that go with the episode, if you want to take a look at those. There are also ways to support the show on there. There, of course, is the Dirty Knees Soap Company link, if you need some good soap, and other bathroom products that are just naturally made and just smell fantastic. Go up to that link and check that out. If you use SDS Cast when you check out, you'll get a 10% off. And there's also a PayPal donation link if you want to leave a donation to help the show out. And of course, a bunch of merch is on the show as well. Um, I went to the Mothman Festival last weekend and I, I had a shirt made up that was very promoty. It had, you know, to just walk around and kind of expose the show a little bit. And I had a lot of people compliment and actually really like it. So I think I'm going to make a series of shirts kind of based off that one. Uh, simplify them down a little bit. Take all the huge promotional stuff on. It was a Mothman Festival shirt and I had like the red eyes and stuff on it. So I'm thinking about maybe making like three of them. Maybe making like a Mothman one. Maybe a Flatwoods Monster one. And a third one that I don't know yet. And just kind of making this little series of kind of, you know, small town cryptid encounters. And throwing those up on the store, so look for those soon. I'll probably be starting, I'll probably try to dabble with that next week and see if I can come up with some designs. But I think that's going to do it. Uh, Next week is episode five, so it will be True Crime Night, episode number two in that sense. And that's what you got to look forward to next episode. Until then, remember, every town has a secret. What is... Yours.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.